0: Thrive friends, this is your host, Dr. Solomon. Today, I'm joined by a special guest, Christian Bush. Christian is a fellow professional colleague, and his accolades are just so numerous. He is a top 30 emerging management thinkers globally. He's a member of the World Economic Expert Forum. His new book, The Serendipity Mindset, has been highly recommended by the HuffPost as, quote, life-changing book. Christian is also a professor at NYU and a visiting professor at London School of Economics. Christian Bush, welcome on Thrive. Thanks so much for having me. Truly excited to have you as a guest today. Christian, you did your master's and PhD at the London School of Economics, and you are pursuing an academic career at NYU now and still in touch with LSC. I'm curious about your journey to the advisory role for executives. How did this come by?
1: Yeah, it's really something, you know, since I've been 18 years old, I've been on a kind of intense search for meaning, trying to figure out what is something that really kind of uh, is impactful in the world. And I've tried out different platforms. You know, I started out as an entrepreneur, then social entrepreneur, and then went more into business. And one of the things I've realized is that, you know, whenever we were building things, or whenever I was kind of, you know, coordinating around uh, businesses and so on, Uh, it always felt we're reinventing the wheel. It always felt, well, there, there has to be more to that. And so I kind of dove deeper into academia to try to understand what is the evidence behind, you know, success and failure? What is the evidence behind how we create social environmental impact? And, and, and how we don't and so it's really kind of in a way that inner curiosity of saying, how do we really understand what things such as impact mean and how do we then take that into companies and into into communities and so on and so it's really kind of. Um, I've always loved this idea of of bridging between different areas um, and kind of having navigated through different areas. I feel like academia has become a beautiful home because it allows to focus on generating really interesting insights and ideas, but at the same time, you know, then kind of working with people in business to really say, okay, how do we um, now put that into practice again, but also then, you know, make that really kind of this learning circle and and really uh, learn from each other and, um, you know, implement that. And I think especially in a fast changing world, nothing is more important than kind of to try to understand what is it that we know already and what is it that kind of we have to learn along the way and then implement that.
0: I totally agree with you. And you clearly are a man who are wearing many hats. So this brings me to the question, how do you go about dividing your time? You are a writer, you are a teacher, you are a coach, you are a director of the Global Economy Unit at NYU. How do you go about not only dividing your time, but the decision about allocating your time between all these different practices?
1: It's a great question, it's something you know that that has kind of been a challenge, uh, you know, over the years. And I think one of the things that that shaped my work mostly is, is this idea of maker versus manager schedule, and saying, you know, I try to block in the morning time where I completely focus on content on like conceptual thinking, on strategy, on the big things where you need two or three hours of kind of uninterrupted time. And so I I literally schedule a meeting with myself then so nobody gets that meeting. And then essentially kind of the meeting, meeting, meeting stuff and, and, and other things. And I feel like by doing this, what happens is that you very consciously in a way, you know, when you, if you would map it in kind of like important urgent kind of categories, a lot of times, you know, we get into the urgency, but not so important stuff all the time, because that's, you know, what's on top of our inbox and and so on. And so it's kind of like the typical manager schedule where you're a lot of times kind of reactive or you're kind of, you know, managing fires and things like that. It's a lot of times urgent, urgent, but in the long run, when you look back in five years, it might not be the most important. And so it's really kind of the morning, the two, three hours are really the kind of important ones that are not as urgent. Um, And then essentially the rest of the day is like, okay, let's kind of work on the things that are urgent uh, and sometimes, of course, the, the urgent and important things, but um, it's really kind of that differentiation where then um, the mornings are for the more academic work and conceptual work and then the afternoons for, you know, the, the rest of the work. And I feel what it did in terms of well-being also is, you know, I realized that if you, if you, if you, if you put them together too much then it gets frustrating because if you're trying mm-hmm. to dive into, you know, conceptual work where it takes you like 10 minutes to get into it and then someone comes for a quick coffee, you know, it takes you so much time to get back into it and then you feel you were unproductive versus, you know, safeguarding that time and then pushing all the meetings uh, into, into the day later um, allows to also feel more productive and, and to, you know, when you look back at the end of the month, you're like, oh, actually there were a couple of things I really got done versus I was just kind of fighting fires.
0: I love these thoughts. It reminds me of uh, Eisenhower's matrix of the important and the urgent and the different quadrants. And the quadrant two is the one that usually important, but not urgent, but somehow this quadrant tends to be shifted or lost in the middle of the quarter one, which is everything that's urgent. Also, uh, the idea of having a block to meet with the self. I don't think this is something that we are good at. And by we, I mean people who are working in the professional world. We usually have a block to meet with someone else, but not with ourselves. And before we move on, I'd like to ask people watching us to open a new tab and look up the serendipitymindset.com and then click on tweets to check the latest updates about Christian's work. Time to chat about your new book, Christian. I looked up the definition of serendipity in the Oxford Dictionary and is defined as the occurrence and development of events by chance in a happy or beneficial way and an underline by chance. In your book though, Serendipity Mindset, you suggest that serendipity is not a passive process that happens to us. If anything, we can, I'll quote you, attract the unexpected or another quote, cultivates serendipity. So how could we reconcile this discrepancy between the classic definition and your definition of uh, serendipity?
1: Yeah, that's a great question because that's essentially how we, you know, a lot of times when we think about serendipity, we think about something that just happens to us, right? It's passive. Mm -hmm. It just happens to a couple of people and that's that. Um, But, you know, serendipity in a way, when you go back to the original idea of it, where, you know, if you look back into the kind of history books of when the princes of Serendip were traveling and, you know, it was all about essentially they made these, you know, accidental discoveries, but they had to make sense out of it. They had to have sagacity. They had to have wisdom or curiosity to essentially connect dots and and do something with it and so that's really kind of why serendipity in its original idea but also in 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 the research we've been doing and the kind of the latest research that's that's out there in general serendipity is really not about this kind of blind luck you know which just happens to us you know being born into a good family or you know inheriting something or stuff like this is things that just happens to us passively but serendipity is about the process of spotting something of seeing something that is unexpected that is random that's chance but then also doing something with it and and connecting the dots and so at the end of the day then the beautiful thing of CERN or about serendipity is that we can both make meaningful like make accidents more meaningful so you know if you think about something like Viagra right where you know accidentally like there was some kind of movement in male participants trousers and instead of ignoring this they said when they were you know kind of giving people a medication against angina you know they saw some kind of like movement in male participants trousers and it was about their sagacity it was about their wisdom to see something in the moment and say oh my god a lot of men in the world might have a problem around this let's turn this into a product and so that is how serendipity happens a lot of times right that something goes wrong in the case of penicillin it would be kind of spilled uh, substances and in other cases it's you know some kind of accident that happens but then we have to do something with it. We have to see an opportunity in it. We have to make an accident meaningful. But also, you know, that is kind of the more how we deal with crises and accidents, especially at the moment. But also then we can create more meaningful accidents. And that's where it gets really exciting. Because that's where essentially we can, by the way we ask questions, by the way we have rituals and companies, we can essentially create meaningful accidents. So, you know, to give you like a simple example, there's this amazing entrepreneur in London, Oli Barrett. And if you would ask him something like, um what do you do you know this old question that puts us into Mm -hmm. a box and that we hear at every conference and and at every call with a new person he would say something like you know what i am a technology entrepreneur or education entrepreneur but what i really enjoy is the philosophy of science and i recently started playing the piano what he's doing Mm -hmm. here is he's giving you three hooks where you could be like oh my god such a coincidence i'm hosting piano matinées. you should come by or oh my god such a coincidence my Brother is teaching the philosophy of science, I should put you in touch. The point is that we can use every conversation, every interaction to see the couple of dots that other people can connect for us. And that's really what serendipity then is about. It's about seeing and connecting dots. And the more we can also have other people connect the dots for us, we can essentially develop this beautiful kind of acceleration of of serendipity.
0: This is wonderful. It reminds me of a quote by Louis Pasteur, luck serves the prepared mind.
1: Exactly, exactly.
0: So on this point, Christian, how could we make our own luck during times of uncertainty or unexpected crises?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's you know, I, I'm a big fan of the, the hook strategy that I just mentioned. So mm-hmm. literally every conversation trying to seed some kind of information. I'm a big fan of making a serendipity journal. So thinking about... Mm-hmm. What were the times in our life when we reflect on it where something we where we did something with the unexpected that went to something towards something good versus something where nothing happens. So understanding what holds us back. So, for example, um, imagine the situation, you know, you're in a coffee shop and if you have erratic hand movements like I do, uh, you know, you spill coffee all the time. And so imagine you spill coffee over someone in the coffee shop. And you sense there might be some kind of connection, you sense there might be something there, you don't know what it is, of course, but you you know, now you have two options. Option number one is you just say, I'm so sorry, here's a napkin, you walk outside and then you think, oh, I should have talked with this person, right? Mm -hmm. So this feeling of, ah, what could have happened versus Mm -hmm. option number two, you're like, oh my God, I'm so sorry, I was in my head thinking about X, Y, Z, and then maybe that's kind of your co-founder that comes out of it or your love interest or your business partner. So the point is, if we reflect on these kind of questions in our serendipity journal, we can see the patterns behind how we tend to act on the unexpected, how we tend to act in situations where we sense there could be something where we don't do it. And then we can dive deeper and say, what is it behind that? Is there the mm-hmm. imposter syndrome that takes over? I can see the potential opportunity, but I don't act on it because I don't feel worthy or I don't feel X, Y, Z. And so I'm a big fan of, of really also first working on what holds us back from opportunity and then dive into the practices such as the hook strategy. There's a lot of other strategies that are, that are kind of like, you know, um, very pragmatic, but also for companies, you know, we can, mm-hmm. we can use things. I'm a big fan of the, um, of the project funeral or the post-mortem where, you know, usually in companies when something doesn't work out, or even in families or other kind of groups, Mm -hmm. right? In communities, when something doesn't work out, we don't want to be the loser, right? We don't want to be Mm -hmm. the one who messed something up. So we try to hide it. So we don't talk Mm -hmm. about it. So the problem is we don't really learn from each other that much because the real learning, of course, comes from something that didn't work out. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, if if you use a project funeral, the idea is that the person who's responsible for it lays it to rest in front of people from other kind of divisions in this case, and then essentially says, "This is what we learn from it." So it's not about celebrating failure; it's about celebrating the learning from what didn't work. And so in this one case, you know, they had this um, <coughs> this company that produced um, like window glass, window frames, and the idea was that the light wouldn't reflect. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's it's an amazing technology, but they said, "Look, we learned that um, the market is not big enough to really make a lot of money with it." So the latest rest. Now someone in the audience goes like, "Hey, hey, have you considered what this would mean for solar?" If you considered if we would take that technology and put it into a solar device, like how much energy that could absorb? And that is, quote-unquote, coincidentally, how part of their solar division emerged. You know, nobody saw it coming. Nobody, by definition, can know what the unexpected outcome is. But they created a process that makes it more likely that some kind of positive outcome happens. And so I'm a big fan of these kind of rituals or practices or even small things. You know, in meeting, from time to time, asking what surprised you last week? Was there anything that was against what we expected? And once you do that, you, you essentially legitimize the idea that there's always something unexpected in the data that can potentially help us to come to the coolest things. And so, you know, that's essentially how most innovations and inventions emerge, right? That people see something in the unexpected and then do something with it. And there's a lot of examples. I mean, if we have more time later, we can talk about, for example, the potato washing machine, which is one of my favorites.
0: (laughs) And how about individual levels? So you mentioned the coffee example, but say someone got laid off because of the pandemic or any other economic uh, trouble. How can they use serendipity in in a situation like this?
1: Well, one thing I've seen a lot with my my students here is that, you know, they had their careers mapped out, they had their next job mapped out, they had their internship mapped out, and then COVID happened and, you know, it all kind of fell through. And one of the things we've done is to say, okay, can you set serendipity bombs? So can you essentially, Mm -hmm. even in a period where not a lot of people hire, how can you put yourself on the radar in a way that whenever someone will hire that they are thinking Mm -hmm. of you? So for example, can you write to 22nd degree contacts on LinkedIn, um, you know, who somehow inspired you, right, because obviously, you know, the beautiful thing about platforms like LinkedIn is you can get to second degree contacts via email, and you can essentially reach like so many people, You, you know, as a student, like who doesn't have a lot of contacts, and you know, two associate professors. You know, via them, you have so many second-degree contacts. So now mm-hmm. the idea is to say, okay, like looking at the at the person who has like potentially a job at some point, and saying, I've been so inspired by you, and like a really genuine kind of you know message in terms of saying, hey, I've been inspired by you. I've been exploring X, Y, Z. Just wanted to reach out and X, Y, Z. You do that 20 times, right, in a non-pitchy way, and like two or three people are like, oh my god, like mm-hmm. you know, we've been thinking about exploring X, Y, Z, we don't hire at the moment, but I'll get back to X, Y, Z. The point here is that by putting ourselves on the radar of people, that is then when in two or three or four or five months, now the first people are coming and saying, hey, Wasn't there this XYZ student who was reaching out about XYZ? I'm currently hiring for XYZ. The point here is that essentially, the more we can set these different bombs that could go off at a later point, the better in those periods where, you know, like we we, we, we both, like we hustle, right? I mean, I remember when I, like one of my first companies, we essentially it came out of like financial crises where you know we 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 were building this kind of essentially a community-based incubator a wonderful community around it and we wanted to do it first as a conference mm-hmm. and then you know financial crisis hit and we had to completely scrap it because the sponsors jumped ship and then essentially it was an amazing opportunity to just rethink everything and just say you know what actually maybe we shouldn't do it at a big event, but we should do like local small events and then build the community more organically. And that turned out to be the best thing to build a close knit community. The point here is that, you know, bad luck in the short run a lot of times can actually turn into good luck when, you know, we use it maybe to like, like look inward and say, maybe there's other areas or industries we could like go into afterwards. Maybe I can, for the first time question now my career track, or Mm -hmm. if I, if I could do something completely different, but also like, again, coming back to the idea of the serendipity journal to go back and say, what is it really that my core interests are? What is it really the kind of areas I'm really interested in? And how can I reach out to people and see those dots now? So that then essentially a lot of times, you know, jobs get co-created nowadays right it's not that just someone kind of says here's a job description like apply to it but it's essentially where you seeding what you're excited about and then someone says you know what we just wanted to do xyz like let's let me put you in touch with the person who's doing it the point here is like it's really about um also what we talked about earlier the more we can you know cast our hooks and and and, and put our bombs out there and um, the better for for things that can can happen i think in the immediate um in the in the immediate moment one thing i've seen Worked really well is to consider every conversation as a conversation where there could be something in there, even with an old friend, right? Mm-hmm. If we talk with an old friend, a lot of times clients come from the stepmom of the brother's sister's friend. You know what I mean? Like it's kind of like it's completely unexpected places where a new client comes from. Yeah. But if we don't tell people about it, if we don't, if you don't tell people about, hey, I'm currently looking into X, Y, Z, like you know, just in case you hear something, like we have to put it out there. And so I think it's really about putting out there what are we looking for, sharing that with people. And then a lot of times essentially, you know, in a non-pitchy way, if we do it in a non-pitchy way and people really want to help us, that's how a lot of things emerge. And I've seen that in my own life, how a lot of times in those toughest periods, that's where from the most unexpected corners, something happens if we really do that kind of seeding, seeding things out there.
0: I couldn't agree more with you. Life is really unexpected by definition. For our audience, if you are enjoying this conversation, please click like and subscribe to the YouTube channel and share the link on your social media. And why not follow me on my social media at drsolomonmd. Christian, this is a question I ask every guest on Thrive. We all had setbacks where we picked ourselves up and managed to thrive. Would you mind sharing a setback of yours and how did you overcome it?
1: Yeah. I feel like in my life, so I've had a couple of near-death experiences in my life. And I think Mm. those were usually the experiences where I, in a way, found a lot of meaning in them. Um, And I've had a lot of conversations, you know, with people who have faced death or who have had near-death experiences. And that question of how do we frame it? Do we let this event define us? Or do we try to reframe that event into something that that we have some kind of agency in? And I remember, for example, Um, So I had a severe form of COVID earlier in the year, and I remember, um, you know, like, I couldn't really breathe, I was like in a very, very kind of, um, you know, like, (laughs) uh, yeah, in a a rough state. And and I remember I reread uh, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning book, and, you know, I mean, Viktor Frankl survived the Holocaust, like he was in the concentration camp, like this is the toughest of situations you can imagine, and still he found meaning in it where he said, like, okay, You know, things such as every day I will still speak with one person. Um, here in the camps and by doing this I make them feel better and because I make Mm -hmm. them feel better there's some kind of meaning for me still here and I've seen that with a lot of friends during COVID right for the first time they they connected with their elderly neighbor because like the elderly label is so alone and so now they feel okay at least in the day-to-day I can drop them like a a, a bottle of water every day or whatever like something that really kind of still brings a little bit of day-to-day meaning and I saw it with myself like to me it's usually then like the the couple of near-death experiences I had in my life, like usually were very strong kind of like reorientations towards what I find really meaningful because I remember my first kind of real near-death experience was uh, when I was 18. I, you know, before that I was this reckless teenager who I was kicked out of school. I had to repeat a year. I was the nightmare of a parent you can imagine. And I transferred this into my driving style. And uh, I, I one day kind of smashed uh, four parked cars, all completely smashed, including my own. And I will not forget the policeman who came to the scene and was like, oh my God, he's still alive. So this idea that I was supposed to be dead. And, you know, I asked myself a lot of weird questions like who would have come to my funeral? Was it all worth it? Did I do anything meaningful? And it was depressing to think about it because at that point I would have to say, no, not really, not that much meaningful. And so that really set me on this kind of intense search for meaning that I referred to earlier in terms of trying to figure out like, what is life really about? And if I run in front of a car tomorrow, was it really worth it? And, you know, I've had a lot of conversations with people who had similar experiences. And I always love these. There's a, those of you who interested, said they, there's this, this, um, uh, I think if you Google probably something like deathbed regrets, um, mm-hmm. nurses or something, it should come up where they ask nurses, what is the top deathbed regrets of people? And, a lot, you know, nobody ever said my top deathbed regret is that I didn't have five cars in front of, in, instead of like like four cars right they usually say i wish they had lived like a more meaningful life in terms of like stronger relationships with the people i care about or whatever meaning means for the respective person and you know to me that was a big reminder again this year to to really kind of refocus again because i think we get caught up in like our day-to-day and how important everything is but you know what like once you face death like things don't really matter that much and so it's really kind of um that revaluation i i've I've usually kind of gained from these near-death experiences but I I feel this is why I'm such a big kind of um, fan of the idea of reframing and really saying, how do we leverage those situations and and really try to make the best out of it. And, and Victor Frankl really, you know, his, his point was always about saying, we can't always control the situation, but we can control our response to it. And if we control our response to it in a way that, 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 that that uses us to, to, to develop our own kind of meaning around this then essentially that's where our agency comes from that's where our liberty comes from and in a way that's a lot of times where serendipity comes from and i think that's kind of um what what to me those those experiences have uh, you know brought a lot of times
0: What a story especially the car accident one and then your life turned around at that time christian did you become a good boy to your parents after this
1: you know, it's interesting, my, so my school friends, whenever I meet them, they still say, like, Christian, we don't recognize you, like, from, you know, you you used to be this rebel kid, and, like, now you're kind of this nerdy guy who's, like, going around and, like, you know, uh, doing, doing his nerdy stuff, and, and, you know, it, it, it was interesting, because I remember the time, right, after that car crash, it was that time where I started applying to a lot of universities, and because my high school certificate was, was crap, right, it was so bad, like, you can't even imagine, I did a lot of, kind of, extracurricular, kind of, like, like, performance type things just to have something on the cv right but like i i wrote over 40 applications and you know that was back in the days when you still had to like actually send the letters through the mail and stuff Mm -hmm. like that And, and and you know um that always reminds me like how how fast time flies right but it's kind of um the the Um, you know, out of those, like, it was very few that actually got back and said, okay, hey, like, here's, here's something you can do. But that kind of like was the start of saying, okay, I want to make the best out of this. Now, Um, I come from a kind of, you know, I was put into this world in a relatively privileged environment. And so I might as well do something with it versus, you know, wasting it with just kind of like living into the day. And so it was quite a quite a changing point.
0: Yeah, it seems like it was not only a life turning event, to you but also to some of the people around you who who saw you going through this and saw the change in you as well so we are coming unfortunately to the end of our conversation Christian and we'd like to ask you anything you would like to share with your audience on Thrive that you haven't shared before on any other podcast or interview
1: yeah I mean this is you know almost like a call for collaborations also because I'm Uh, you know at the moment with the book and with kind of like the activities around the book I'm experimenting a lot, like what are the kind of different areas of application in terms of, you know, is it going deeper into the psychology of how we can reframe anxiety into uh, something else using a serendipity mindset, you know, kind of uncertainty from threat to to an ally or how we can, you know, um, go deeper into companies and, you know, work around HR processes in terms of how do we recruit people who either already have a bit of that mindset or how we can train people in that mindset. But I think, you know, the big picture is to say, when looking back in 10 years from now to really be able to say, Hey, we really kind of like took that mindset and brought it into many as many contexts you know being that universities being that companies being that communities as possible as kind of a major way to really in a way give give that that joy of life back right because i feel like in a world you know that is so fast changing where we you know i come from germany like i was trained in like planning and strategy and everything else and then the world happens you're like oh my god like nothing i thought about the world is actually still true right because everything is changing yeah. and, and so on and so really building that muscle for being ready for the unexpected and making the best out of it. I feel like a lot of purpose behind that. And so I I feel, um, you know, it's it's an open invitation to essentially also to to your viewers to say, if you feel there's some kind of opportunity to connect dots together, um, I'm I'm very open to that. And um, via, you know, LinkedIn, Twitter or so to connect and to really develop that uh, further.
0: Christian, what is your username on LinkedIn so that people can reach out to you?
1: On LinkedIn, it's uh, Christian Bush. Um, And then on Twitter, it's at Chris Serendip.
0: At Chris Serendipity. And people can reach out to you on Twitter through your website as well.
1: Exactly. yeah. Yeah.
0: I can speak with you for days, Christian. I hope I can have you again on Thrive sometime soon. For people watching us, if you're enjoying this conversation I'm having with Christian, please subscribe to the YouTube channel comment on the video remember to check christian's website the mindset.com, where you will find links to his book and also his latest tweets until we meet next time keep safe keep motivated keep resilient and see you in the next episode of thrive thank you
1: thank you so much